Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Home Abstract and Title Company was founded in 1867 and is the oldest company still operating in McLennan County. Home Abstract is comprised of a team of honest, friendly, hardworking professionals dedicated to providing both commercial and residential real estate clients with the highest level of communication and service. Their team is committed to working hard and building and maintaining strong relationships because transactions are so much more than just deals. They are clients deserving of the courtesy, care and respect that Home Abstract and Title Company is known for. Visit Home Abstract and Title Company at homeabstract.com. Cross the Brazos and White Road. Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. I'm safe when I reach San all right, welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. We are continuing our Waco Crossroads series, and uh, Sheriff McNamara was so generous with us last time with his time, and so we're going to take advantage of that again, and we're having him back on our Criminal Crossroads uh, episode part two as we kind of look at uh, some, some major events, crime events in the history of Waco McLennan County. Uh, but also uh, we're getting now into Sheriff McNamara's career a little bit. But we're going to step back before we do that, right, Rick? And, yeah. And give yeah, more context. Know, um, the, the the beauty of doing podcasts is once you've done one, you always think of the things you didn't say or you find information that you didn't know before. It almost happens every time. And in fact, that's why we're going to do a wrap-up podcast on the whole series. That's, that's right. That's, that's a good tease one. for that. We're yeah. going to we're going to amend and addend and uh, correct in some cases some of the things we've talked about but uh one of those things uh i thought i'd share with the audience i found a a poster from uh, 1874 actually february 18th 1874 that a citizen had put out uh, in waco and uh, i thought i'd read you a little excerpt from it it's it's kind of interesting so someone taking um uh, you know, t- taking uh, the investigation in their own hands. So $300 reward. I will pay $300 reward for the arrest and delivery inside the jail door of McLennan County, Texas of Bud Weaver, Frank Griffith, and J.F. Turner. Hopefully they're not still around because we just might <laughs> put them on the run. That's liable. Yeah. Who shot and attempted to murder me in my own house 10 miles north of Waco in McLennan County on the 15th of February, 1874. I will pay a hundred dollars reward for the delivery of either of the above named parties and uh, a liberal reward for any information that will lead to their arrest. Um, so, uh, you know, Sheriff, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, the, the investigative, uh, you, you know, the, the Sheriff's department wasn't as active back then or not, but it is interesting that the citizens having to put their, uh, their own posters out to try to get justice. <laughs> yes, it is. It really is. And I believe at that time, I know 1874, I believe was the uh, year that uh, Saul Ross, Lawrence Sullivan Ross was elected sheriff of McLennan County. 
And, of course, he'd been a ranger captain. He'd been a brigadier general in the Confederate Army and uh, was later governor of Texas. But he was a sheriff here about then, so that's that's pretty interesting. Um, well, I'm sure you're the first to would be the first to admit that sometimes your resources are spread thin. So maybe they were just spread thin back then. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know there were no probably no telephones. They had telegraphs at that time, but the communication uh, was right. just was not there. So they would tack up these wanted posters, and uh, sometimes they were very effective. And even today. Uh, we ask the the media, we ask our uh, citizens to help us solve crimes that we're having trouble solving. And so we, you know, ask the citizens to help us be our eyes and ears of law enforcement if they can. So, you know, back then, uh, this guy, I'm sure he was frustrated. They apparently shot him, tried to kill him. And so he put his own wanted poster out. And uh, that's pretty cool. It really is. Yeah. So the last thing I want to read from him, he gives a description of the assailants. So I'll, I won't read all of them. But the last one, J.F. Turner is about 28 years old, dark complexion, black hair, and eyes. Uh, uh, I didn't know you could have black eyes. But uh, <laughs> six foot high, and when he left, he was dressed in a gray coat, brown pants, and was riding a very small brown mule. The others were riding brown mules. Just hope he doesn't change if mules. Yeah. <laughs> That'll throw the That's amazing. Trail. You got to describe the getaway vehicle, right? Um, so um, anyway, okay. At Let's... least we know they didn't leave at a high rate of speed. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a slow pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And the other thing I wanted to give our listeners an update on, I think the, the in the introduction of our first part of this uh, crossroads, uh, the criminal crossroads, we talked about uh, your ancestor. Which one was it? Who was sworn into office in the late 1800s? It was. Um, well, Guy McNamara was the first one of our family that yeah. was uh, sworn into law enforcement. That was actually 1902. He was the elected constable okay. Okay. and then chief of police of Waco. And then President Roosevelt appointed him the head United States Marshal, I believe, in 1933. Right. Uh, my granddad was uh, deputy sheriff here in 1905. Okay, and I think and it was I, I think it was your granddad's uh, oath of office that that we yes. looked at last time, right? That's right. correct. Yes. And in that, it, the full paragraph was devoted to uh, swearing that you had never been in a duel, part of a duel, uh, been mm-hmm. a second, second in a duel. Second in a duel, yeah. And it was just seemed very um, very odd language. Uh, so I, l- I looked into that a little bit, and. Apparently, that language was constitutionally mandated in 1845 uh, from uh, from the first uh, U.S. Af- after Texas became part of the U.S. and had to write a, a, a state constitution. And the reason given was, uh, uh, you know, Southern um, culture then mm-hmm. really was was uh, uh, you know if you were wronged, if you had to solve a, a problem between mm-hmm. you or someone else or or you felt like you had been wrong. Um, um, what am I thinking of? Embarrassed or yeah, yeah, it like, it's an honor thing. Yeah, right. insulted yeah. in some manner. Right. That that a duel was how you solved all your problems. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it was mm-hmm. just the it was just the given in how things were done. Well, that's not great when you have a state that only has one hundred twenty five thousand people in it, and it needs an army, and it needs a government, and it needs and it tended to be. Uh, a lot of times the the leaders 
uh, in the military or government that would get into these duels all the time. So you're killing off your best talent mm -hmm. or at least maiming them in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's that's why they put that that in there. Yeah, du up until that time, uh, dueling was legal in Texas. Mm -hmm. Two men stepped out in the street and one of them got killed. Uh, it was okay if it was a fair fight. And what I found was strange, that first oath of office was in 1905. And then he was deputized again under a different sheriff in 1916. And even in 1916, it was still mm -hmm. on their oath of office. Yeah. And that, that's a good so. point. It was 1938 before there was a constitutional amendment to take that out of the Texas Constitution and change it to the, to the oath that we see today. Hmm. So it took that long. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> And I think we've we've talked about before that the Texas Constitution is probably one of the most amended constitutions mm -hmm. of any state. Um, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> they didn't do a great job. They were dueling too much and not paying attention to what they were writing. <laughs> well, yeah, it was more fun. Yeah, and there was a lot of dueling right here on the Austin Avenue uh, and yeah. Franklin. And, yeah. Now, so explain because even today, I saw, I saw a couple articles talking about some states that it's still kind of quasi legal, uh, but. In Texas, we do have a mutual combat type clause or, uh, you know, if two individuals are going at it and they both agreed to go at it, I mean, not necessarily shooting at each other, but that's not necessarily what, legal. What that's you, not considered assault. What are, you, what are you trying to get the sheriff to endorse here? <laughs> well, I'm not. It just, it was a wrinkle in our laws that it looked like uh, it was, uh, I don't, I'm totally speculating. You know, don't believe everything you read or, yeah. or hear on podcasts. Yeah. That's right. Well, Texas is a very strong uh, self-defense state. Stand mm -hmm. your ground. Uh, you don't have to flee from an assailant. Mm -hmm. And if you are where you are legally, uh, then you can stand your ground. You can protect yourself uh, with deadly force if you have to. And mm -hmm. so uh, some states like Massachusetts, uh, you have to have exercised every avenue of escape and case in point was this poor lady that was a widow and this low-life burglar burst into her house, chased her through her house, upstairs, downstairs, into the basement or down anyway. Um, she grabbed her deceased husband's shotgun and shot and killed this guy. And she did a mandatory year in prison because there was one more door that she could have run out of. And that was in all the magazines. That was a few years back. Mm. So that's a very good reason to never move to Massachusetts. <laughs> uh, stay in Texas. I'll add that to my <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are several states like that that don't recognize a person's right to protect themselves. And that's really sad especially women and kids. Mm. Well, we left off last time, and, and, and uh, Sheriff, I'm sorry, we're kind of going from one horrible thing to another, but that's your career is dealing with these, <laughs> dealing with the horrible, <laughs> these horrible things. And, and we uh, something that, that was really big locally, statewide, and still cast a shadow is the Lake Waco murders that occurred. Uh, in Waco in, in 1982, in, in the early part of the 80s. And I'm interested in kind of your recollections of that case um, and kind of what you remember about it. Well, it was a, uh, it was a very brutal triple murder where some three really bad 
individuals took uh, uh, three teenagers out uh, to the lake and literally butchered them, mm-hmm. just uh, slaughtered these kids. And uh, it took a while for the uh, police to solve it, but they did a good job. They finally solved it and uh, sent them to prison, and I believe one was executed. The others have died in prison, or I know one of the others has. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, just a horrible situation. And uh, innocent young kids uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time and uh, ran into some really brutal, evil people. Mm-hmm. A very sad case. So your office didn't have did, – did y'all have any indirect engagement and role in that case? I, I was with U.S. Marshals okay. at the time. And so it was a Waco PD case, and I think mm. the sheriff's office worked on it. But I me see. being federal, yeah. it didn't have a federal angle or federal aspect. But, you know, everybody was interested in it, trying to help. But mm. uh, it was mainly uh, the Waco police, okay. and they did a good job on it. Okay. A- another case I want to ask you about, and, and I'm not sure and the Rangers were very involved in this case, is the Henry Lee Lucas kind of confessions that were happening in the, in the 80s where I know a lot of things were cleared uh, in Texas and in other places with, uh, with the alleged killings that Henry Lee Lucas was confessing to. And I don't know if, I, I don't know if the marshals were involved in that or, at all. I know the Rangers were heavily involved in it. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. The only dealing that I had with Lucas was on a federal writ that ordered Lucas to be brought from McLennan County to San Antonio and go before the uh, U.S. attorney there. So Sheriff Jack Harwell uh, and I carried Lucas down to San Antonio and then brought him back. But it was a case where he apparently just started confessing to hundreds of murders. Uh, There's no question that he was a brutal, evil low life, mm-hmm. uh, just a nasty guy. Uh, but he wanted to be the worst of the worst. And so he, I think he even got up to five or 600 confessions and, uh, but there's no question he killed a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you didn't mention on, uh, on the Lake Waco murders, there was actually, uh, in 86, um, the, the, uh, book came out, careless whispers mm-hmm. by, uh, Carlton Stowers about the incident, and I and I'm trying to remember. I think that was actually even turned into a TV. Um, I think there was like a series or movie doc- docudrama week. or yeah. something yeah. along those lines. That's right. Um, yeah, that didn't make it into our entertainment episode. It did not. No. Did not. Um, okay, 1993 was a big year in Waco, Texas. Um, <clears throat> the uh, uh, Branch Davidians. Uh, in fact, they actually had quite a bit of history here. The Davidians did mm-hmm. um, uh, that our listeners may or may not know about, but uh, it goes back to 1929 was when the first Davidians moved to Waco, uh, an offshoot of Seventh Day Adventist Church, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they bought a farm, a couple hundred acres out west of town. Uh, eventually. <clears throat> Moved from there in 1957 out to the Elk area, which is the the location we're familiar with. Uh, I think it's interesting. One of one of their old buildings from their compound is actually part of 
uh, Vanguard Preparatory yeah, School. Yeah, at the old location, um, it is. You can still see the doomsday clock. Uh, the artwork that is put into one of their buildings is still there. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we obviously need to do a, a whole episode on the Branch Division. Yeah. We have not done that yet. I can tell you a little bit about the background if, yes, you, if you want to. Yeah, sure. Please. Um, this would have been, I believe, in 1956. Um, they were forecasting, I guess you would say, doomsday, right. end of the world. Mm-hmm. And there were hundreds of tents set up uh, where Vanguard School is now, mm-hmm. out uh, on uh, Lake Shore. <clears throat> And so my father took me and my brother out there. Uh, we were kids, elementary school, and he said, look at all these people. They think the world is coming to an end at midnight tomorrow night, Saturday night. And he said, they're going to feel pretty stupid when they wake up Sunday morning and the sun is still shining and the earth is still turning. So it was really kind of scary, you know, when there were tents and you could see little campfires out there and... Uh, this is right on the campus of Vanguard mm-hmm. High School. So anyway, um, that was my first dealing with the Branch Davidians. And, of course, the founder was a guy named Hotef. Mm-hmm. And then after that, Ben Roden and Lois Roden took over mm-hmm. uh, the Branch Davidian. And they were all nonviolent. They were all very peaceful, religious fanatics. And so... Uh, then at some point, I believe you're correct, uh, around 1957, they moved out to uh, close to Elk. Mm-hmm. And at first, or for many years, it was just a series of maybe 40 or 50 rambling shacks. Um, and uh, not until, uh, you know, David Koresh, whose real name was Vernon Howell. I knew him as Vernon Howell. He wasn't anything but a two-bit street punk is all he was. And he took over. He he knew the Bible. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when he came into the uh, cult, as, as it is, um, people started listening to him as opposed to George Roden, who was the son mm-hmm. that had taken over after his father, uh, Ben Roden had passed away. So it was George Roden and Lois, his mother, that were running the compound. So anyway, Vernon Howell took over and uh, started getting control, and a lot of crazy things happened. Um, There was a big power struggle between George Roden and uh, Vernon Howell. And so at some point, they pull guns on each other, and uh, Roden ran Vernon Howell off the property, and he went to Palestine Mm -hmm. and uh, came back a couple of years later, and they had another fracas, and uh, Ben, uh, not Ben, but George Roden ended up going to uh, an insane asylum. My brother and I had to arrest him uh, there at the original compound, and uh, he was actually out on the highway in front of it. And so we put him in jail, and he cursed the federal judge. He used really bad language, cursed the female uh, federal clerk. And so he was put in jail uh, for contempt of court, and that kind of gave uh, 
Vernon Howell, uh, more horsepower by him being gone. And so mm -hmm. at some point, uh, Vernon Howell changed his name to David Koresh. He wasn't any more David Koresh than we are. Mm -hmm. um, and he liked to have sex with young kids and anybody he could. And then, of course, history, you know, stands for itself there. He annulled all the marriages and basically had all the women that he wanted as his wives and started having kids by them. So, you know, the rest is history. They had the bad shootout. And, uh, well, so but, before we get there, in, in 1987, that's when he got control. And uh, I think a little tidbit, um, Stephen, I don't know if you know this, but at some point in the late 80s, early 90s, the Davidians actually had a restaurant over by Baylor. Do you remember? You remember Big Daddy's? Uh huh. And over there by where the center, yeah, um, apartments are, and that strip center there, and uh, they were using that as a way to try to uh, attract people to to join the cult. Um, hmm. I don't guess it was very successful. They didn't stay. It didn't stay open very long, but. Uh, hmm. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, they, he was trying to grow his his membership. He also had uh, a bar um, called the Q Stick on the old Dallas Highway. It's now Rockies, kind of a weird looking building, but that's where um, David Thibodeau and some of those guys would mm. recruit young girls um, under oh. the guise of having a Christian band. And uh, that's right. He was a he was a guitar player. Uh -huh. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, that's how he would lure a lot of these. Uh, and there were some Baylor kids that were, were going into the compound. And we found out about it. And one of them was a daughter of a friend of mine. So my brother and Bill Johnston, the U.S. attorney, and I went to uh, our friend and said, you know, she may not come out if she keeps going in there mm -hmm. with her friend. They were like 16 years old. Oh, goodness. And so... Uh, we talked to the young girls, told them basically you can never go back in there because we knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody was just trying to get a better grip on what he was doing. But it was obvious uh, people that were coming out were telling, you know, he's abusing these kids. Uh, it doesn't matter how young they are. One of them was even as young as 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And he was just a, a dyed-in-the-wool pervert and... Uh, Anyway, um, that uh, it was a very dangerous situation, but they were using the, the uh, restaurant that you're talking about and the Q-Stick mm -hmm. as uh, places to uh, procure these young people. Mm -hmm. And they would do it under the guise of, this is a Christian rock band, we're good people. Mm -hmm. right. They were using scripture and all that. And uh, they were just... Phony prophets is all he was. Mm -hmm. So, Sheriff, what, what do you know about uh, February 28th, 1993, the morning of? Well, I know a lot about it because I happened to be out there. Yeah. Um, there were two um, areas. There was the initial ATF SWAT team that went in on the initial uh, assault, so to speak. And uh, there was probably 90 officers that were in a group that I was in uh, on the TSTC campus. And so we were just going to wait until the compound was secure. And then we were going to go in and identify because I knew a lot of those Davidians. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew Perry Jones, David Jones, uh, 
Martin. I, I knew a lot of them just from seeing them around and, and knowing what was going on there. So that's kind of where we were. Uh, and how far away is <clears throat> TSTC from the location of the compound? It's probably as a crow flies, a mile and a half maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, once the shooting started, um, we couldn't hear the small arms going off. It was a kind of a rainy day, but we could hear the big 50 calibers. Mm -hmm. uh, we could hear them going boom, boom, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were in line waiting for the word that the compound was secure. We had videoed helicopters leaving, going to the uh, to the compound. There was uh, two Hueys and a uh, Black Hawk, and uh, nobody dreamed in their wildest imagination that it was going to end up in a shootout like that. Mm -hmm. It just was going to be a situation where the SWAT teams went in, secured it, and then we were going to identify the players the best we could and uh, extract Vernon Howell, a.k.a. David Koresh. Mm -hmm. And so we're in line getting ready to for the call, and an ATF car drives up and says, we're in a really bad shootout. We got people wounded, maybe dead. And so we were just in shock. Uh, everybody got out, and we didn't have a radio to the ATF SWAT team. We had their regular radios, and so we couldn't hear what was going on, but we listened on the ATF radio that was in the ATF car that drove up, and we could hear people hollering that they'd been shot. I'm shot again. I'm cold. I'm up against the side of a building. It was just one of the most horrible things mm -hmm. I've ever heard. Uh, it was like a war. And so um, just a, a terrible situation we ended up with, uh, I think, 14 or 15 agents that were wounded. Uh, my brother and I went to the hospital uh, with some of them, and four uh, agents, of course, were killed. Mm. And then also some Davidians were killed. Mm -hmm. A very bad shootout and uh, mm. very sad situation, especially when you factor in that there were a lot of kids in there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you you mentioned the marshal's office was the marshal's office coordinating with ATF. And yes, I mean, what, um, yeah. the way this thing came about, um, a UPS driver was delivering packages to the compound, and apparently one of them packages dropped and broke open, and they were hand grenades. Uh, they, I don't think they were live grenades, but they were grenade casings where they were going to make live grenades out of them. Mm -hmm. And so they contacted the sheriff's office, uh, and the sheriff's office contacted ATF, and so everybody started looking at it. And we were working very closely with ATF at the time, and uh, we were requested, U.S. Marshals, uh, my brother and I, we were the only two marshals out there to begin with, but we were requested by ATF to back them up. I see. And so we went to the uh, second command post, as it was called there on TSTC. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a very sad situation. One agent had front teeth knocked way back in his mouth by the butt of a gun or baseball bat or something inside the compound. And my brother called a friend of ours who was an oral surgeon and met him at his office, and he 
uh, fixed the guy's teeth. He was out of Houston. And uh, then we went to the hospital with some of the ones that had been shot. Some of them were shot up really bad. Hmm. <clears throat> well, then the 51-day uh, siege uh, followed after that. Very uh, long 51 days. Yeah. yeah. What, yeah. Uh, what do you remember about the siege? Well, um, quite a bit about it. Yeah. It, uh, after the third day, they pulled um, all the police officers back from the compound area because they had a lot of big weaponry there. They had 50 caliber Barretts. Those things are, uh, they shoot a 50 caliber Browning machine gun round, and uh, it's... Uh, it's a huge round, and some of the, the helicopters been hit by those rounds and ripped big holes in them. So they pulled all of us back off the perimeter. Uh, it was basically turned over to uh, the Rangers, but the Sheriff's Office and I believe Waco PD uh, were still working the roads, keeping people back. And, of course, there were a lot of people that lived mm -hmm. and had homes mm -hmm. in the area there, so we're trying to keep a balance there, keep them safe, but let them have access to their homes. Now, the ones right across the road, they couldn't go back. Uh, it was an undercover house uh, there on Double E Ranch Road. It had been shot all to pieces because uh, they had been shooting at uh, the agents that were in that house. So mm -hmm. I don't think anybody was allowed to go back in there for a long time. But anyway, it was uh, it was a bad situation. Koresh was going to let him come out. Um, then he wouldn't. He backed out. He lied about everything he told. Uh, the first night, there was, I believe, 19 or 20 kids that were released. And I was in the group of officers there at TSTC that received those kids uh, along with other police. And so we had a lot of candy and cold ranks for them. And it was really strange because of the way they were acting. They were arguing over candy bars. You know, I want a Hershey bar. I want a whatever. I want a Dr. Pepper. No, I want a Big Red. It was almost like they had just gotten off a ride at the fair. Mm. And, you know, they've been through probably up until that time the worst police shootout in history. Mm. And uh, it was like it didn't even dawn on them. Mm. It didn't register with them. Mm -hmm. At least that's the way it's, it appeared to me. Wow. So finally, on April 19th, um, the uh, FBI or the federal agents, uh, what turned out to be the final assault, um, probably um, everyone's seen the infamous videos of what's going on there where they're trying to put tear gas into the building and in with the using tanks with long booms on them and at some point you start seeing flames come out of the building in multiple places uh there's probably a little bit of controversy on what started that fire or you know the you know what what uh was it did they were they started internally or were they accidentally started by the agents either way that tinderbox burned down quickly and uh of the 85 davidians that were still in the compound 79 of them did not make it out. I can tell you straight up that it was started from within. Mm -hmm. I sat through every single day of that trial in San Antonio. 
Mm-hmm. Even Davidians were testifying. There were very few that got out, just mm-hmm. a handful of them right. were testifying that they saw Koresh, uh, Steve Snyder, his right-hand guy, um, I believe Clive Doyle, they were saying spread the fuel or whatever, something to that effect. Um, they started the fire from within. Mm-hmm. And I was in the office when it happened, and we were we knew that they were going to gas them out or put gas in there. So I had a female Davidian in the U.S. Marshal's office that morning, and so we were watching it on TV. And uh, so I told this lady, I said, uh, they're going to be coming out pretty soon. And she looked me square in the eye, and she said, no, they're not. They're never coming out. I said, no, they'll come out as soon as that gas hits them. And she said, no, they are not coming out. So it was really strange because I was we were watching it on the TV in the marshal's office and then looking out the window on the horizon, and we could see the, the smoke in, in real time. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it looked like it was obvious, rather, that – it was going up in flame. Nobody was coming out. Two or three, four or five people trickled out that it was burning. This lady's daughter was in there. Mm-hmm. And I so guess. I said, uh, you're not going to watch this. Are you going in the other room? She was a material witness. She hadn't been a shooter. And she says, why not? Everybody else is watching it. Mm-hmm. And I said, your daughter's in there. And uh, isn't she? And she said, yes. And God, I wish I was in there with her. Oh, and so I realized the commitment that she had, and she was a very pretty young girl and mm-hmm. had uh, about a, I think a 14, 15 year old daughter in there. So at the end of the day, after it was all said and done, they had a list of names that had gotten out that had survived the fire, and her daughter was one of them. And so I went in the other room where she was, and she had to be in handcuffs and all because the U.S. attorneys and all were talking to her. And I told her, I said, I've got some good news. I said, your your daughter made it out. And she never even acknowledged. She just stared at me. And it, I thought she would be elated. It was almost as if she was disappointed that her daughter didn't go up in mm. the fire with, with uh, Koresh. So the mindset there was... Uh, really strange, but I went through every day of that trial, and believe me, the government did not start that fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a sad situation. All the kids that whose lives were lost. I mean, they were totally innocent, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but the blood is on Vernon Howell's hands, mm-hmm. A.K.A. David Koresh. It's mm-hmm. all on him. Mm-hmm. So, so besides the ones that made it out of the final assault, there were other adults that got out before then with yeah, some of the children releases. released. Yeah. Yes. I, think, I think the final tally were <clears throat> eight of those survivors were convicted of firearms charges, um, five were convicted on voluntary manslaughter, and four were acquitted. Yep. Mm-hmm. It, uh, I remember one of the agents that was testifying that he had gotten in a low place. They had Kevlar helmets on. And they were shooting him in the top of the helmet. 
and he said it was like he was getting hit in the top of the head with a hammer, and he identified one of the shooters, uh, and uh, they, in in the trial, they said, how can you be sure this is the man that was shooting at you? And he said, sir, you never forget the face of a man who is trying to kill you. Mm. And it was very profound. Yeah. And uh, anyway, sad situation all yeah. the way around. Yeah, Sheriff, I, you know, you've, you've had a long career since then. I mean, I'm just, you know, what are the things you kind of take away from that as a, as a law enforcement officer as far as, I mean, it, it's such a huge tragedy uh, but I'm just interested in your thoughts on it. Well, it was definitely a game changer. Yeah. Uh, that was the last thing that anybody out there expected, yeah. especially from a, a religious uh, group. And um, it changed up a lot of ways that a lot of the tactics that law enforcement used, um, much more careful, uh, try to evaluate people that you're going after mm -hmm. uh, and learn all you can about them and the situation. And, you know, there's been a few since then, but nothing of that magnitude. And, uh, but it was a, it was a brutal lesson learned mm -hmm. to all law enforcement. And uh, it's just very sad that it happened that way because there were so many innocent people that lost their lives, especially the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a different event, unless That's there's it. anything else no, there. Um, there um, I believe uh, you've got some, um, some background or, or history with some horse wrestling that happened in McLennan County that was pretty close to you personally. Yes, um, that was in, in May or early June of 1996. Um, our family had a rodeo arena out uh, toward China Spring. We'd had it for many, many years. Uh, it was actually the Baylor Rodeo Arena when I was going to Baylor, and so then we took it over years later. So had horses there, and uh, some horse thieves came down from Ohio, and they had uh, stolen horses all the way down to Texas. And we did not know about them. And so my daughter called one evening, and she was very upset. She'd gone up to the arena. She said, Dad, um, the gate is cut, the lock's cut, and the horses are gone. And so I was on my way to uh, Dallas, to the prison up there, with a van load of Bandito motorcycle gang members that had just been sentenced, so I couldn't turn around and go help her. So I told her to call the sheriff, and as it ended up, it was uh, actually just in the city limits, even though it was out toward China Springs. So Waco PD handled it, and uh, when I got back, I realized that if we wanted anything done on the horse thieves, uh, we were going to have to handle it and get the uh, Texas Southwest Cattle Raiser agent, uh, Eddie Foreman, involved. So what we did, uh, we formed an old-time posse with Secret Service, U.S. Marshals, uh, Special Texas Ranger, um, 
and a U.S. attorney anyway, and we went after them. And so it took us six months to track them down and solve the case. But in the meantime, we found nine horses that had been stolen in the central Texas area, in fact, right out in the China Spring area. And uh, we tracked them to Beltex in Fort Worth, where they had taken them, and uh, that's a slaughterhouse. And so certain days they were slaughtering cattle, other days they were slaughtering horses. So um, through that investigation, we were able to determine the three people that came down from Ohio and were stealing horses and taking them to the slaughterhouse. Cattle were down to about 35 cents a pound. Horses were up to uh, 95 cents to a dollar a pound at the time. Horses are easy to catch. They come to a feed bucket, you put a halter on them, you get them in a trailer and you're gone with them. And so they were stealing these horses. Uh, There were two Baylor girls that had horses at Baylor camp. Uh, Their horses were gone. Uh, We found one of those horses tied to a tree, shot in the head with a forty-five. We have no idea why they killed that horse. And so anyway, to make a long story short, uh, the ironic thing with the Baylor girls, uh, the young lady called me uh, before Christmas, and she said, if you find out what happened to my horse, will you give me a call? And I said, of course I will. She gave me her phone number, and I noticed the area code was the same area code as the horse thieves in Ohio. And I said, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Dayton, Ohio. I said, how far are you from Lima, Ohio? And she said, about 15 miles. And I said, the people that stole your horse are from Lima, right down the road. And how how ironic is that, mm-hmm. that those thieves came down here and just happened to get that young lady's horse mm-hmm. after she brought it down here from Ohio. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, my daughter's horse was one that was stolen, and she was rodeoing for Tarleton at the time. And so she always asked me, she said, Dad, will you tell me the truth when you find out what happened to Penny? And I said, of course I will. So when we found out that the horse that was with Penny, we got that horse back. It was over in another county, in Limestone County. That was the only horse we were able to save. All the others were killed. Mm. So that night, I called my daughter, Marissa. We called her missing, and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm studying, Dad. What's wrong? And I said, why do you think something's wrong? And she said, it's in your voice, Dad. Is it Penny? And I said, yeah, it is. Mm. And so she said, is she coming back? And I said, no, she's not. So I had to go to Stephenville where she was going to school at Tarleton, and I sat there all night with her crying. Mm. And uh, she wanted to know. She said, I want his name, Dad. I said, no. I said, you stay out of this. You let me handle it. She said, I want to know who he is. And I would never tell her until he went went to jail. And so it uh, it broke her heart. Uh, she kept saying that night, you know, why would they kill her? Why did they kill her? And I said, they're just mean, evil, demonic people that would do that. And so we found out that they had stolen horses 
in Oklahoma, uh, all across the country, in Florida. And uh, anyway, you know, horse stealing used to be a hanging offense. Uh, say it used to be a capital offense. Mm-hmm. It, it was. And, it, and, and it, <laughs> in that case, I thought it should be. Uh, the the uh, trauma and the sadness that it, it caused these people. You know, the, every horse has a name. They're not like a herd of cattle. Mm-hmm. Every horse at some point was somebody's pet. And so um, they were stealing people's pets and slaughtering them and then shipping the carcass to uh, Belgium and France. Horse meat is a, is a prime over there. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, there was a big market for it. That's the sad part. Mm-hmm. But they could steal them, take them to Belltex, get money for it, drive off, put them in a kill chute. Seven minutes later, horses slaughtered, gutted, skinned, beheaded, and he's on a rack. So how did y'all catch them, Sheriff? I mean, how did you catch that group? Just unbelievable police work on the part of everybody involved with the posse we got we really worked up a lot of interest almost to a fevered pitch um, <clears throat> until our horse was stolen i didn't even know these horses were being stolen yeah and so we uh, we kept getting tips uh, we put old time wanted posters out uh, $2000 reward leading to the arrest of horse thieves stealing and had descriptions of the horses on there. Um, and so people were calling in and a lot of people had been dealing with these, this group and they just didn't seem right. Um, they were flim flammers and, uh, it, uh, just one thing after another, we were able to get the goods on them and, and arrest them. Mm-hmm. It, it was a series of things. We had to get creative. We tried to get them uh, federally for stealing the horses. There's no federal statute. Uh, so we were trying to figure out if there was a way to charge them since they carried the horses down the interstate yeah. highway. Yeah, uh, That didn't fly. So they were putting phony papers on the horses, and they would buy grade horses for $200 and then they'd put these highfalutin registered papers on them that was phony and sell them for five ten thousand dollars and of course that would contaminate somebody's herd if they were trying to build a herd up because they had a horse they bought in an auction somewhere that uh, you know they held it out to be sea biscuit and uh, mm-hmm. you know it was you know been bred to a mule or something mm-hmm. and so um, anyway, that, uh, we had, we ended up filing on them for, uh, mail fraud because they were sending phony papers in mm-hmm. to the American Quarter Horse Association. Then they entered some phony horses in horse sales in Oklahoma. And we said, well, how'd you get the registration up there? I said, oh, we, we faxed it up there. So we seized their fax machine. We filed on them for wire fraud. And they were going, this is bad. This is wrong. This has never been done before. And we said, no, it's not wrong. It's right. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep doing it. And so 
we we hammered them every way we could mm-hmm. and uh, and i'm guessing you went that route strategically because the um, consequences were were uh, you know they, the the conviction would be much more um uh, what's the word i'm looking severe. for severe or for wire pro- fraud appropriate than it would be yeah. for um just uh livestock theft is, is i mean what's it um we we got a couple of good sentences for him, yeah. and um, mm-hmm. it uh, they didn't get what they deserved. Mm-hmm. Sure, you know those people that did that to these kids' horses, my daughter's horse. Uh, you have to understand. I've been accused of a lot of things. I've never been accused of being politically correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should have ended up on the end of a rope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. uh, broke her heart, and these other girls, the Baylor girls, and everybody that lost their horses, mm-hmm. found out they'd been slaughtered. Yeah, yeah, and that's probably something in today's culture people just don't—they don't get—they don't, get, don't get the bond between a person and their horse. Whereas a hundred years ago, I mean, that was so. You know, oh, that so, was you, for so, life. You depended yeah. on your horse. Oh, yeah. absolutely. You know, and they, uh, the horse was the soul of the West, mm-hmm. you know, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, uh, that was a very sad case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, another well, case that, that uh, becomes a national case is the uh, Patrick Dennehy uh, murder here locally. And um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in kind of your memories of that, or uh, at this point, you're still with the, the Marshal's office in 2003. Um, so I'm interested in kind of, was it Marshall's office involved in that at all? No, okay. uh, not as far as I know. Okay. And I had just retired when that happened. Okay. I retired, uh, April 30th. And that was June. Uh, yeah. And that happened after that. But, okay. you know, everybody was talking about it. Just a, you know, another sad case. It shouldn't mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. Yeah. So give us some background on that case, Stephen. Well, uh, so June 12th. 2003, uh, Patrick Dennehy, uh, who was a, a player on the men's basketball team at Baylor, was shot by his teammate, uh, Carlton Dotson. And uh, Dotson eventually is going to uh, plead guilty in 2005 to the murder, and he's currently uh, serving a 35-year sentence for that murder. And then it set off a, a larger chain of events in the wake of that. Right. Um, and the murder – uh, was of course the biggest tragedy, but another tragedy is is the news that that was leaked on how the murder was handled internally within the men's basketball program, particularly in the coach's office. Mm-hmm. Right, and it uncovered some other infractions mm-hmm. that were. Well, you were in Waco. You were in Waco at the time, mm-hmm. so sure. and you're yeah. a Baylor fan. So I wasn't back in Waco yet. So what are your memories? Yeah, well, program? I mean, obviously, you know, shock because Baylor. Had actually been a little bit on the rise, yeah. actually, and we're uh, looking much more competitive, and so it was. It was quite a blow, um, you know. It 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 certainly ushered in, uh, as far as Baylor and basketball goes, kind of this, uh, uh, you know, dark time. You know, unsure what's going to happen. It's going to go great. You know, this everything from they're going to totally shut down the, the basketball program mm-hmm. um, to just severe sanctions, whatever. Um, 
But as we as we see every basketball season, I love it when they do the retro uh, first interview with Scott Drew. Yeah, and he, this young Scott Drew, you know, one of the youngest Division One coaches at the time, mm-hmm. taking the helm with a, uh, of a job that was pretty unattractive at the unattractive, time. Unattractive, but man, just mm-hmm. hits it with a lot of charisma, mm-hmm. and and actually makes a few statements that people just kind of smile and go yeah right and uh he's gonna win a national championship at baylor mm-hmm. so uh you know you, you hate the event that got you there but you love you know we all love a redemptive story and mm-hmm. very thankful that uh that that's played out that way yeah yeah uh, another a big event that comes from your next career here your your next career as sheriff, and I, I know we can't talk about this much, but the the, the biker gang shootout uh, that occurs at Twin Peaks um, out in Central Texas Marketplace. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would just say one of the things about this that I think is really interesting and pertinent to this Crossroads <laughs> podcast series is we we tend to we want to focus on the good things about Waco being a crossroads city and how it's you know. Uh, its importance in Texas. There's also this negative. I mean, we're also very accessible by for uh, uh, you know the, the criminals in in the state and in the area. It's I mean, a, it's a meeting place for unsavory activities, right? Too. Yeah. Besides, as as we talked about, you know, last podcast about I-35 being this uh, gateway to to the United States that runs through our city. So there's a lot of stuff that happens here. Anyway. It was infamously being a um, meeting point for these biker gangs mm-hmm. was was so, uh, yeah. So May seventeenth, twenty fifteen, a shootout uh, erupted between two clubs, the Bandito and the Cossacks, that were at Twin Peaks Restaurant in Waco. Uh, Waco police, state troopers, uh, were monitoring the event and returned fire, and very tragically, um, fire in a, a very public place. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a very public restaurant. Um, nine backers were killed and there were 18 injured uh, or wounded in that shootout. And uh, we're going to we're going to give the, the sheriff a, a pass to, to talk about this. <laughs> right. Just because, uh, you know, the, the legal fallout of the Twin, Pick, Twin Peaks uh, shooting, that shooting that occurs there uh, is still ongoing. And Sheriff, I don't, I don't know if there's anything safe to say. Uh, that you that you want to say about that incident? Just that um, it was very bizarre that yeah. something of that magnitude happened in Waco in broad daylight at high noon on Sunday. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, we heard about it. We got there probably twenty to thirty minutes after the shooting. And, uh, you know, there were eight people dead at the scene on the parking lot and one had expired uh, at the hospital and numerous people were injured, shot, mm-hmm. and stabbed. Mm-hmm. So it's something that you don't even, it's hard to comprehend how that happened on our nicest, newest mall yeah. on a Sunday afternoon at basically high noon. Yeah, I'd just and, driven past uh, there, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. On the way home from church, uh, but yeah, and you know, you had a uh, uh, Mexican restaurant right next door. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those cars had bullet holes in them. 
Uh, those people were ducking for cover. Uh, could have been a lot worse. Oh yeah, you know. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> just a um, horrible thing that happened mm. uh, right here. Yeah, it's uh, something you may think would happen out in the desert at midnight or 3 a.m. somewhere, uh, you know, two gangs shooting it out. But you just uh, right across the parking lot from Cabela's and uh, Cavenders and, you know, just right in the middle of all the businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, sad situation. Very sad. Well, Sheriff, are there any other uh, events from your career um, that, that are noteworthy that you'd like to bring up? Let's see. They will not get you in trouble. About. <laughs> hey, they all get me in trouble. <laughs> um, see, we did talk about Macduff. Yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. Let's yeah. cover yeah. that. I yeah. think we've covered pretty much everything yeah. on here. Um, a lot of wild history yeah. here in Waco. There you is. Know, and it uh, started way back there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't realize, but there's some really good books that um, – have a lot of the Indian culture here. There were some very serious Indian battles um, around Waco. Uh, right, if you if you ever read um, Border Wars of Texas mm-hmm. by James DeShields, he was a Baylor graduate. Um, he wrote the book um, back in the 1890s. So he interviewed a lot of the people that were in the shootouts and the the battles and all. And so uh, there's a tremendous or horrendous Indian battle right on Emmons Cliff or Lover's Leap. It says it's at the confluence of the Brazos and Bosque Rivers. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the Cherokees and some other tribe, but uh, you don't even think about that. Yeah. But there was just a lot of Indian activity here from 1830s, 40s, and 50s, and then when things started to settle down, uh, you know, after Waco uh, and McLennan County became established, you still had a lot of activity, outlaws, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So anyway, a lot of colorful history mm-hmm. right here. Yeah, one, one of the uh, parts of, and we've, we've referenced this before, so when George, and George Eras reminisces in his, uh, when he's talking about his career in life, uh, one of those events when he was operating as a ranger <clears throat> soon after the Republic, uh, Republic of Texas uh, got its independence, the Mexicans were still trying to stir up trouble. And one of the things they were trying to do was get the Indian tribes to, to come down and attack. And so they were, uh, they had them uh, organized and there was, they were camping uh, on the South Bosque river, which we think of that as Lake Waco now. I mean, that used to be the South Bosque that ran through there. Mm-hmm. You got to think pre-Lake. And so uh, Erath, talked, he was out um, doing some recon, and I uh, can just see him looking off the escarpment down into the valley, and he described like 5,000 Indians encamped down in there. Um, just mind-blowing to yeah. think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it is. Um, and the, the McLennan family was... Uh, attacked in down around Falls County. Um, and John McLennan, uh, young John was captured and spent a lot of time with the Indians. Um, and you know, that's who McLennan County's named mm-hmm. after, of course. That's right. Uh, Neil McLennan. Uh, 
but the settlers and the pioneers, uh, they, they had a tough time they were fighting all through it, here. Yeah. yeah, they were fighting for their life mm-hmm. and their livelihood. So anyway. Well, well speaking of rangers, um, we brought that up. Uh, that it, we, we are very blessed in Waco to have the Texas Ranger Company F headquarters right here in Waco, right behind the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame um, off of I-35. And it's been there since 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, you know, I, I don't know their exact territorial boundaries, but they kind of cover this central Texas area. Um, um, anyway, it's it's great to uh, have them headquartered here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I was there for the groundbreaking in 1968. I was a Baylor student. My dad was uh, with U.S. Marshals. And so... He was friends with a lot of the Rangers, and of course I knew him. And then when my brother and I went with U.S. Marshals uh, in 70, you know, we were still working with those guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a pretty neat deal. So yeah. mm-hmm. uh, anyway, kind of grew up with them. Yeah. Well, Sheriff, we want to thank you for yes. your, your service, your service on the U.S. Marshals and your continued service. You don't retire well, but you're. <laughs> There's <laughs> like a lot a, of things I don't do well. Like Michael Jordan here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Your continued service uh, to the county. And uh, well, I, thank you. You know, we, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is you do have an appreciation for history. And so I, I really appreciate you. I know you're busy taking the time and, and sharing some of these stories of Waco's past. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I do love history and appreciate you guys, including me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had a good time here uh, yeah. remembering some of these things. And because uh, Waco mm-hmm. has such a colorful history, it and does. It needs to be saved, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we agree. Well, we're going to end it while you're still having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you all very much. Thank you. I really Sharon. appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.